Sylvester Turner is serving in his second term as mayor of Houston after first being elected in 2015. Turner served for 27 years in the Texas House of Representatives and ran his own boutique law firm, Barnes & Turner. Today he will discuss how political priorities have shifted since he took office five years ago and how Houston is combating its COVID-19 outbreak. Let's listen in. Thanks, thanks, Glenn, and thank you for a very gracious, uh, gracious introduction. It's good to be with everyone, and I know Fred Zeitman is is um, is on is on the call. And uh, let me just give a a, a, a special acknowledgement to him because he helped me to get uh, in this seat some five years ago. So I I appreciate that. I hope he doesn't regret it uh, five years later. Uh, but look, this is this is a great city. I was born in this city. Uh, and then I left here for a few years and I went, went east, uh, went to law school, and then I came, I came back and served at, the, uh, at a large law firm downtown for a number of years before starting another law firm, a boutique uh, law firm in the downtown uh, area and was a partner there and then went to the legislature and then came back and now mayor of city of Houston. That, uh, when I came in uh, five years ago, uh, the focus was on the budget and, and, and pensions. Uh, the unfunded pension liabilities, which hadn't been addressed in 17 years in the city. We had a short window to get that addressed, and, and we did, and we put in place uh, permanent pension reform, uh, reduced the unfunded liability uh, by a third, um, and, and without, without raising anybody's taxes or, and without a, a significant infusion of cash from the city, uh, but turn, turned it around and it's now treated like a mortgage of 30 years and every year slowly goes down. And so that was, that was a major accomplishment uh, uh, for, for our city. And it did it with the collaboration of the, of the unions, uh, the municipal workers, police, uh, fire to some, uh, some degree, uh, and then the business community and of course members of city council and then the legislature. So that was at the beginning of the administration and then four months into my administration, we, we had a major flood, a tax uh, day flood. Uh, we had to address that situation. A year later, we faced Harvey, more rain that fell on this city than any other city in, in the country's history. And that was in 1917. Uh, um, uh, 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 then um, we dealt with Tropical Storm in Melter the following year. And then in 2020, of course, we're dealing with the coronavirus. And then on top of the coronavirus, Irish, we were dealing with, it had to deal with the aftermath of the George Floyd's death, the civil unrest. Um, and, in, and then of course, I had to balance, balance the, we had to balance the city's budget again before the end of June. And with the loss of sales tax, and it just seemed like that was gonna be a, a very difficult task. It was challenging, but we ended up balancing the city's budget um, unanimously, I might add, Democrats, Republicans alike, uh, city Council all voted for it. Uh, we're in the midst now of hurricane season. So it's been a number of things. Sometimes things come one at a time. Sometimes they come two, three, four at a time. And it's been, uh, 2020 has been a very challenging year. But I will tell you, we've been able to, to address it um, by working together in this city. This is um, the most diverse city, you know, in the United States. There's no group that, that dominates. Uh, it is a uh, pluralistic society in its truest form. Uh, but people have worked very well together. Um, in March and April, you know, our numbers um, with regards to the coronavirus were quite admirable. Uh, when New York, in a sense, shut down in March, uh, so did the city of Houston. So at the end of April, uh, our numbers were exceptional. Um, and since then, things have kind of, kind of um, jumped up. Um, and now we're working to kind of get on top of things and bring things down. But even, even as it relates to our deaths, I think in New York City, I think uh, as many as 18, 7, 18, 19,000 people died in New York City. In the city of Houston at this point, uh, it's a little more than 500. That's still, for us, for Houston standards, way too high. Um, but when you compare it to other cities our size, uh, the number still is relatively low. Uh, but we're doing, working very hard to get on top of that. Um, and then in terms of civil unrest, you saw a lot of cities on the, in the news across the country, from Atlanta to Seattle and L.A., New York, Denver. I would tell you, with the exception of one evening, 
that Friday evening, May the 29th, uh, there were a couple of buildings downtown where windows had been broke, were broken in. Uh, other than that one, one evening, uh, the uh, demonstrations, protests, unrest in the city have been were relatively peaceful. Um, I never had to, to put in place a curfew of any kind. Uh, things were just relatively peaceful. And even when we had 60,000 people uh, to march downtown um, uh, on June the 2nd, uh, I joined with them um, in, in that march. And again, 60,000 right in the midst of protests and demonstrations all over the country, 60,000 marched downtown starting at three o'clock. Um, and again, at the end of the day, uh, things were relatively peaceful. So I give credit to, uh, to, the, to, the, to those who marched, demonstrate, who demonstrated, give credit to the George Floyd family who asked for things to be done peacefully. Uh, they were reared in this city. Uh, some still live in this city. I uh, give a lot of credit also to uh, our police force uh, who handle things in a very professional and respectful fashion. Um, things were, were, were relatively peaceful. So there are a number of things we're dealing with. This is an, this is an incredible city. It is the energy capital of the world. Uh, we're in energy in, in a transition sort of mode. Um, uh, it's the, the world's largest medical center is right here. Uh, and the focus is now for us is, to, is creating this innovative ecosystem. Um, other cities across the globe have kind of jumped out ahead of us. Uh, we've had a lot of innovation, for example, in the energy sector, the healthcare delivery system, NASA, you name it. But we just haven't done an, a good enough job in creating an integrated, robust ecosystem. We are now doing that. So we are not just walking, we're really sprinting and developing that. So, you know, we've all been adversely, adversely affected by virtue of the uh, uh, coronavirus and other things. Uh, but this city has proven to be strong. Uh, resilient, and we're working every day to build a more sustainable um, economy in the city. So let me just stop stop there. I kind of just wanted to touch on a few things, and if there are more specific questions, uh, I, I can address I can address those. So Mayor Turner, I get the uh, the privilege of being a fire starter. It, okay. it used to be called icebreaker. I think today it's called fire starter. And so. And, I, and honestly, I'm, I, I do swell with pride about Houston for many reasons, and a lot of which you, are, you just articulated. But first question is, the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus in the House has spent a lot of time with a few senators working on a $500 billion bill for states and cities. Right. And that's getting moved around the House and Senate. What's your view on Houston's need for federal funds in the wake of COVID? Um, the, need, the need is there, and it's a real need. Uh, I, and, and let me just explain why. For the city of Houston, we're the fourth largest city in the United States. Um, when, um, when, when we ask um, people to work from home, uh, stores to uh, the retail sector, for example, to suspend their operations. Um, well, since March, um, almost all conferences and conventions have shut down. So there's been a tremendous loss in sales tax. Uh, for the city of Houston, that's way in excess of $100 million that we have lost just because you know, people have not been coming to the city or purchasing deals, things. And we get our revenue from two primary sources, property taxes as well as sales tax. Uh, well, when that goes down, we are adversely impacted. However, when we ask people to stay home, uh, they don't stop eating. They don't stop putting you know, trash out. So the services have to continue. You cannot pick up people's trash remotely. Sanitation solid waste workers still have to do their job. And what we have found is that people are putting more things out since they're at home, which means our solid waste workers are having to work even um, overtime. For police and fire, they cannot work remotely. They have to do their jobs. For people in public works, who attend to our water and sewer system, they can't do that remotely. So the expenses for the city continue to be there. They don't go away because of the coronavirus, okay? And we represent the infrastructure that support businesses and people who stay at home. If you want the economy to open up, who supports, who is the backbone of the private sector in a sense in terms of permitting? You don't want that to shut down. 
okay? Even during the coronavirus, the city of Houston never, we never stopped residential and commercial construction. It has never stopped in the city of Houston. In terms of um, uh, our streets and roads, that never stopped. So those expenses keep coming. The other thing too is that uh, they did send us, for example, the city received $405 million in CARES funding, okay? But because there has not been hardly any movement, uh, the city is facing a, um, issues of um, evictions and the pressure is on local government, like the city of Houston, to stop evictions. And so what have we had to do with some of the dollars that we've received? Um, there was a first round where we provided um, rental assistance uh, from those CARES dollars, okay? We hadn't really planned on spending the money for that, uh, but we did. And then the second round, when people were pushing for a citywide moratorium on evictions, which I, which I have not supported, I don't think it's a good idea because it only digs the hole bigger. Um, we've just done another round uh, for, rental, uh, for rental assistance, $20 million. 15 million of that is coming from the city. Uh, but at the same time, I've reached out to other people who have generously in a matter of days contributed another $5 million to put together a $20 million fund for rental assistance. The point that I want to make is that, you know, the, I, I represent a public corporation, not a private one. My public corporation never closes. The services that we render cannot stop, and many of our services cannot be done remotely. And so where other people may have gotten, for example, a bailout, in a sense, we have not because you can't use the $405 million that we receive in CARES funding to, for revenue replacement, okay? And some have said, well, we don't wanna give money to the cities because we don't wanna bail out their pension system. Look, we solved our pension system in 2016. So the monies that we're asking for is not being used on, on, on a, for pension reform, that's been done. We are needing dollars in order to continue to provide uh, police, uh, fire, solid waste, uh, permitting, all of those services that are vitally needed to support businesses as they open and seek to. Um, thank you, Mayor. Um, listen, before we go uh, forward with questions, first from Fred Zeidman, um, I just want to acknowledge that Chrissy Houlihan, United States Representative, is on the phone. And Chrissy, if you want to call, just let us, if you want to ask a question, let us know. I also want to acknowledge Murray Bowden for reaching out to Mayor Turner to ask him to be on the call. And we appreciate you, Murray, and thank you. I want so to quickly say hi to everybody. I'm sorry for having my video off. We have no power here in the in the in the Mid Atlantic, so I'll just put my video back down. But thank you for having me, Chrissy. Thank you for being here. And um, Fred, take it away. Uh, to respond to what you said before, uh, uh, let me just tell you that you know I took a lot of arrows uh, with my politics for having accepted being your finance co-chairman, and I have not had uh, one moment of regret for having done that uh, ever since. You have been an absolutely incredible leader for this city and I think this city has shown it. I will tell you, I wanna take issue with one thing that you said. You said we're the fourth largest city in America. Uh, I, I, I contend with the crime rate in Chicago and their attrition that we probably have moved into third place. So that being said, my question to you and I looked at these numbers the last couple of days, is what do you attribute? And, and, and first of all, I think, again, uh, your leadership has just been unreal through one crisis after another, uh, and particularly through this virus. Uh, you know, I think uh, you've been feeding the mainstream media what they want, reasons to bash Texas, uh, because, you know, you're telling everybody we better watch out. But, but that being said, our... Uh, uh, our crime rate this year, uh, when you look at the other major cities in America and you look at what's happened with this virus, just uh, we are way behind. I mean, uh, not way behind. That's the right word. Uh, 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 our crime rates have not increased anywhere near what other cities have. Uh, and obviously that additionally is uh, attributable to your leadership. So I'd like to ask you what you think uh, you did right. 
that all of the uh, other major cities in this country did wrong. That's kept Houston truly peaceful. Let me thanks, thanks, Fred. And look, let me again, let me thank you for for your support, and I, and and I I really appreciate it. Wouldn't, wouldn't be here without it, and 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 I would be remiss not to acknowledge Murray Murray Bowden. Uh, who's right. on the line, and Mary has just been a, a tremendous friend and supporter. So thank you, Mary. You know, let me just say this: you have you have the national standards of fit, uh, a number of statistics, and then you have what I call Houston standard. Okay, and and so and I and and I, and what I mean by that, for example, is that since I've been mayor, in terms of homicide. We have not we have not gone over 300 in a year. Okay, uh, this year, um, and you know, it seems that we may go over that. We may get to like 318 to 320, 325. Um, when you look at others, you know, city of Chicago, for example, it would be its numbers would be two or three times higher than that, and they are the third, and we are number four. So for for Houston standard. You know, we like we like to be, you know, somewhere um, you know, about 260, 270. Um, but when you get to th that 300, you know, we're yelling and screaming and, you know, we got too much. We have too much crime. Um, what we have always tried to do is to recognize that. And let me just add, we have 5,300 police officers, okay, covering 640 square miles. To give you some comparison, Chicago has 13,000 police officers covering 275. We have 5,300 covering 640. Um, but having a safe city is not just based on the number of police officers you have. You all have to also have to make sure that you are meeting the needs of people within your communities and these in these neighborhoods, regardless of where they are. And hence, when I came into office. I said I wanted to focus on communities that have been underserved and under-resourced, driving resources into these communities, and not in an incrementalist sort of way, but uh, but leveraging the city's resources with the private sector, with nonprofits, uh, with financial institutions, the resources that they have, and we have asked them to kind of pool their resources so that we can. Uh, bring about the greatest amount of transformation in communities that have been under, underserved for decades to bring about positive change. And that's been the goal. And what I, and what I have said repeatedly, that when people see that you are investing in their communities, even though it's gonna take some time, uh, they will give you credit and uh, because it is an acknowledgement that we see them and we are doing everything that we can to transform their communities for the better. If you don't do that, then the frustration and the anger and all of that will mount in these communities. And then you'll, 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 you'll see where you're having to send police into areas and it makes it more difficult for police. Uh, so it's a holistic sort of approach. It's, uh, it's not just community policing or relational policing, uh, but it's also uh, investing in communities and neighborhoods, you know, Fred, like the one in which I grew up in and the one in which I still live. I still live in the same community and neighborhood in which I was born and reared. So it's very much a holistic approach because you need police and community on the same page, on the same team, working together, not at odds with one another. I think that's one of the reasons why even with the civil unrest after the George Floyd death uh, that we had by and large peaceful uh, protests in our city um, because of the, um, the relationship that exists. But you have to work at it every single day. Yes, crime is, um, is increasing, but by Houston standard, it's too much. By the national standard, it may not appear to be as much as what's happening in other places. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, Ron Franklin. Hi, Sylvester. Hey, Ron. How you doing, sir? My question, my question is, who's some of your favorite trial lawyers in Houston? <laughs> well, let me see. Let me let me let me think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, Ron, listen, um, you're not, you're not I, only one of my favorite trial lawyers. You're also one of my favorite friends, man. So. Well, I, I wanted to, to join this um, in all seriousness to just reconfirm what I hope you're hearing from everyone, which is universal acclaim for your management of the city 
during this these very difficult times. And I, I really do mean that. And I uh, haven't lived here my whole life and seen a lot. It's unbelievable what you have been presented with and how you've handled it. And I mean universal acclaim. I really do mean that. So Thanks. thank you as a Houstonian and, and good friend. Thanks. Um, my, my question is, um, given Houston's current financial problems, even, you know, some potential issues with social issues, social fabric, et cetera, how are we doing with state versus federal relations, uh, governmental relations, and which of those two can help or hurt the most in terms of being responsive? You know, good question. I will tell you that um, no city, in a sense, when you're dealing with the sort of challenges that we're all facing globally, certainly nationally, cities can do things by, by themselves. Um, quite frankly, it works best when you have um, um, meaningful partnerships at all levels on the federal, state, and local side without, I mean, without question. Um, it, it makes it challenging, for example, if you have local governments operating on, uh, going in one direction and state and federal, uh, your state and federal partners moving in another direction are quite frankly at odds. It makes it very, very, very difficult. And I'll give you the, the case in point that's before us right, before us right now. Um, and that's dealing with when, when a uh, task force put forth the recommendation on me for a grace period of moratoriums across, you know, across the board in the city of Houston. Um, and, you know, we, we'll, we've been waiting on another uh, sort of package coming from, from the federal, from, from federal government that is yet to come. And so when you don't have, for example, either the extension of unemployment um, benefits, whatever that amount may be, or some of the other measures that that people are waiting on, then the pressure flows downstream. And then when you don't get any assistance, for example, from the state uh, uh, in terms of resources, then it flows downstream. Well, who are people able to get to and get and talk to uh, more so than anybody? They're your local officials. And so when, when if, if the help doesn't come from the federal level, if it doesn't come from the state level, then the burden falls heavily on those of us locally. And so the screams were getting louder and louder. Moratorium, moratorium, grace period moratorium. And the question then becomes, do you, you, you just can't ignore it, okay? You have to find a way to be responsive. Um, and so quite frankly, you know, I had my team to go back and look at some of the dollars that received CARES funding and where we redirected some things to come up with some additional dollars for a cash rental assistance program, but even that wasn't enough. So, you know, if you don't get help from the federal or state, I called on private partners, you know, to contribute. And that's when uh, the Houston Endowment and the Greater Houston uh, Community Foundation Relief Fund, um, the Kinder Foundation, Janice McNair from the Texans, all stepped in and said, Mayor, we will add to what the city has because we too don't want people off the street. And then we leverage with the uh, with the Houston Apartment Association, and I want to I want to thank them for saying, look, if you're going to provide this cash assistance, then we will we will find we'll 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 work with you, okay? Because that now you're not creating a win lose, so let's try to work put together a paradigm that will create a win win. So we've done that, but it's not nearly enough to meet the need because we still need the feds and the state to step in, and you know. I kind of hate when we get into political years like now, because things become so politicized and people go to their corners. And even when people know the right thing to do, they're scared to do it because they feel as though um, whoever's in their particular party is going to chop their heads off. So the tendency is to do nothing. But people, the needs of people, the needs of, of businesses and others in our city can't wait. They have to be addressed right now. And so the, in large part, then the responsibility falls on us locally to at least put some things in place that can hold until such time as additional help can come down, come down the pike. Um, 
So, you know, to be honest with you, I've been kind of disappointed uh, uh, with the support that we've gotten from the federal and state level, um, but we find creative ways. Uh, what has been the hallmark, of, I think, of this administration is, is collaboration. And uh, we've turned to the private sector and nonprofits and others to step up. And they've, I've found them to be more effective partners in many ways than, than those coming from the federal and the state level. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, Jim Tozer. Thank you. Uh, over the last decade, a lot of progress has been made in reducing carbon footprints by uh, by having a greater number of people using mass transit. Yes. Uh, I am uh, semi-captive in New York, uh, where our mass transit system has lost the total confidence of its users. And so part of getting people back to work is, is the unwillingness of people actually uh, to ride mass transit. Uh, what have you done to, in your city to keep people confident that mass transit works or otherwise handle that problem so the weak link in getting back to work isn't the fact that people can't get there? You know, uh, it's interesting in the city of Houston, our, our mass transit network is not nearly as built out as that in New York. Um, so, you know, we're still, we're still building out our, our, our mass transit network. It made it much easier for us, for example, uh, with our bus system to take some seats out to create some social distancing on our buses or even on mass transit to to to, um, um, to put some ribbons in certain sections to keep people from sitting there. Um, so that's been that's that's been very helpful. We are we are in the process of transitioning more to the utilization of mass transit. So it gives us we kind of got an opportunity to kind of take what's happening now and and how to and, and then design so to speak a mass a mass transit system that will work in the midst of a pandemic like the one in which we're facing. Um, so we're getting people back to riding on our mass transit system. At the same time, interesting that you raised this question just on yesterday, the city of Houston passed uh, uh, several ordinances that will really help to transition us to, to a much more walkable city, walkable, pedestrian-friendly city, because up to this point, we've been very vehicle-centric, okay? So we are in the midst of a paradigm shift. And the good news is that we can learn from what's happening right now as we seek to build our sits, our mass transit system. Uh, in November of last year, the voters just approved by a large margin is Metro Next, the ne Metro Next program, which is a trans transit program. Uh, so this is a good time for us uh, to learn from what others are doing as we are in the process of expanding uh, the net, our mass transit network. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, Jonathan Rich, and then uh, we'll tee up Tom Tish after that. So, Jonathan, take it away. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, Mayor Turner, uh, another uh, Houston fan of yours here. I uh, appreciate you joining us. I'm not sure how familiar you are with no labels, um, but the mission really is about bipartisanship and problem solving. Yes. One of the things I would note is you've, you've been facing a really unique challenge, uh, particularly around COVID, in both working with uh, Judge Hidalgo at Harris County on the one hand and Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick on the other hand. And I was bit, uh, wondering if, you know, given our, our mission around bipartisanship, if you could address and share with us kind of what you've learned in navigating that challenge and any recommendations you might have for this group as we work to bring the, uh, greater bipartisanship to Washington. You know, working in a bipartisan way is, is nothing, it's not new to me. You know, I was in the legislature for a number of years. I came in when Democrats controlled the, the state, uh, the state house, uh, the Senate, every statewide position. I came into the legislature in 1989. Democrats were in control of everything. I was still there in 2003 when Republicans took over everything. Um, but even in 2003, as a Democrat, uh, um, I was chosen by a conservative Republican speaker of the Texas House to be the speaker pro tem in 2003 and remain the speaker pro tem, second in command uh, for the entire, for his entire term, those, those, uh, uh, nine, those nine years. Um, it was also even after that, well, um, when it came time to for, um, the Appropriations Committee, it was the Republican speaker 
Uh, and I was on the losing side when the transition occurred. Okay, so when the when the, the next Republican speaker came in, uh, uh, I guess you can say he kind of demoted me. I was no more the speaker pro tem. I remained on the appropriations. No, he took me off of the appropriations committee. You know, put me on business and industry and some other committees. But you know, the appropriation committee at that time was my was my uh, the it was the one that I, I really focused on. And so. Um, in 2000, and he took me off in 2011. No, 2000, and, yeah, 2011. But then uh, in 2012, he called me up and he said, uh, uh, Sylvester, uh, we're going to face a huge uh, financial deficit in the state, and I need one of my best budget writers to be on the Appropriations Committee. So I'm going to return you back to the Appropriations Committee. And because I, it's the conferees that's really going to write this budget, and I need you on the on the conference committee, I'm going to name you vice chair of the appropriations committee because the chair and the vice chair of those positions are automatically they automatically go to the conference committee. And he said, I'm going to do it so I don't get any any problems from my Republicans and all of that. So so he named me vice chair of the appropriations committee, and I served uh, continue to serve on that uh, as vice chair until the time that I left. I say that all of this was under Republican Republican leadership. Um, so, from a bipartisan point of view, um, I've, I've, I haven't, I didn't have a problem in the legislature working with with uh, Republicans in leadership, on, on whether in the House or in the Senate, um, because quite frankly, like I told the people in my district, it doesn't matter who's in control. The people in my district still expect me to be effective. And so I have to find a way to be effective. And what I also discovered is about relationships. Regardless of party affiliation, relationships matter. Being able to go to breakfast, lunch, or dinner, being able to uh, go on trips together. The Speaker of the Texas House, for example, conservative, uh, he and his family and friends, we all took off, for example, for to South Africa and hung out for like 13 straight days, never talked about politics, we were together every day, morning, noon, in the evening, did all of that. So it's relationship driven. The same thing that helped in working across the aisle in the legislature are the things that I, I brought here to the city of Houston. This is a bipartisan position. On the ballot, it's not whether you're a Democratic mayor or, or you're Republican, you know, it's just your name and you sell your, 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 your ideas and you try to get as many votes as you can. But um, my mayor pro tem, who I select, my mayor pro tem happens to be a Republican, David Martin, that I selected, who represents both Kingwood and Clear Lake. Now, Sylvester, what does that mean? In my last election, Kingwood didn't, they voted 81% against me, okay? 81%, I got 17% of the vote out of that area. But their representative, has been someone who's been very, uh, number one, he's very good at what he does. He's an excellent council member. And I thought with, with the um, partisanship that exists right now in this country on the federal and state level, that it was important to have someone in the second position, um, who, someone who I values, our relationship is very solid. He's a Republican, but his heart is Houston. And I thought it would be very, it was, it's, would it be important to bridge the Republicans who own city council along with the Democrats? That would be a way of bridging all of that together. And let me tell you, he has been exceptional. He's been exceptional. And so uh, on, on many of the things at the state level, for example, I would say, Dave, go and talk to him. On the federal level, Dave, go and talk to him and then vice and vice versa. So it works, um, but it, it, relationships go a long way. And just throwing, throwing, throwing spears at one another, that's not going to solve it. And so we, you know, I represent 2.3 million people, whether you voted for me or didn't vote for me, I represent you. I, have, I go out to the people in Kingwood and Clear Lake as if they voted for me 100%. Just like I'll go out to the people in my own district where I was born and reared who voted for me almost 100%. So it really, it really doesn't matter. The point is flooding knows no partisan label. A pothole is neither Democrat or Republican, okay? Uh, balancing the city's budget, 
doesn't matter, you're Democrat or Republican, when the credit rating agencies are looking at how you are operating, okay? People want efficiencies. They want a government that works for them and not stand in their way. All of those things are not party label um, 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 items, so to speak. People just want good results. And so I, I, that's the way I approach it. I, you know, I, I get along well still with Governor Abbott. You know, I just talked to him last week and, and the week before then. And, you know, I, I, he knows I've disagreed with the way things open up. But nonetheless, I still have to have a meaningful relationship. And the other thing, too, and I say in closing, uh, many of the people that I've worked for, the worked with over the last 30 years are either working on the Senate side or working with the governor in various positions or supportive. And they will call me up and say, uh, Sylvester, uh, uh, can you do this? You know, we, you know, uh, because of our politics, we may not be able to do certain things, but can you, can you assist? So, you know, the backdoor channels still work. There, there are ways that you can make it work, but I will tell you, you can't make things personal. Your, pop, your personalities get into the equation, you have lost. If you're fighting based on the policy or the issues, you can fight all day long, and when it's all over, you can still go and get a cup of coffee. If you make it personal, if you make it personal, it's hard for people to get past it. And so as a leader, uh, I try just to keep things as level as possible, not to go up or down, so to speak. And I don't get into, uh, I, I do my best not to get into personal attacks. I just, I do my best not to go there. That, that, that doesn't work on, 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 any, on any level. Um, that's just one of the most, or five minutes of the most inspiring stuff we've had in the last five months. So thank you. Uh, Tom Tish, you're next, and then Tom Fish. Yes, I have a, I have a kind of a two-part question on K-12 education. Number one, just a very short introduction to the ecology of public education in Houston with maybe particular reference to charter schools and vouchers. I've been an early supporter of Kip Houston's greatest import to New York. And so I'm intrigued how it works in Houston. Number two, the second part of the question is what may be the biggest human crisis coming out of COVID is the potential closure of public schools um, for students who, where it is so elemental to their, to their ladder of learning and, 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 and everything that comes with it. Could you give a brief, kind of synopsis of where you are in opening the schools in Houston, how you see it getting done. Yeah, and, and, and that is a, that's a, um, um, such an important question. Um, let, me, let me start by addressing it this way. Um, it, is, it is important for kids um, to be on campus, learning on campus, um, on so many different levels kids with disabilities, it's important for them to be on campus, kids coming from uh, communities, um, especially low income areas where parents are having, they are having to work. Uh, there may be parents like the ones that I had, and I don't mean this at all with any disrespect. Uh, neither one of my parents graduated from high school. So my parents were not in a position to teach me to homeschool me, they could not, okay? And so if kids are coming from those sort of families, um, then it really puts them at a disadvantage. If they're coming where they are maybe not as familiar uh, with um, um, Wi-Fi hotspots or have the devices, even though you know, people are trying to put them in their hands, you, know, you just don't necessarily pick it up overnight. It becomes very challenging. And so, um, so it is important, no doubt, to keep people from falling further and further behind for them to be on campus learning. And that's why it is so important how we approach COVID-19 and to make sure that we do it in such a way that you can drive down the positivity rate, drive down the community spread, such that if you can open up safely. Because number one, what's in my number one priority as a mayor of the city of Houston is the health and safety of the people in my city. That includes the these kids, the teachers, cafeteria workers, janitors, bus drivers. 
And so you want to have the community spread at such a level that, the, that, that it is safe or as safe as possible for kids to go or safe to the level that my testing and contact tracing program can be very meaningful if an outbreak should, uh, should occur. And then I can quickly identify, uh, quarantine, isolate, and treat. So you, the infrastructure has to be solidly in place such that when a, uh, uh, something breaks out at a particular school or on campus, you can deal with it immediately. Uh, if, if we were talking about opening up right now, for example, in the city of Houston, with the amount of community spread that exists, I would quickly tell you it is simply not safe. But we are working on it every day to get it as safe as, as it can. So it's imperative that kids return to school as much as possible. And that's why it's imperative from the federal level to the state level to the local level that we work in tandem we work in tandem to, 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 put us, to put us in the best position to manage this virus. And I think that's the greatest mistake that we have made. When the messaging becomes conflicting, when there is no national, when there is no strategy, no consistency, we all lose. It's not about one person winning or losing, we all lose. So that having said that. We're, so public education is vital. I am a product of the public education system and it's vital. With respect to options, I do believe in the educational setting. It is, you know, having options are good. Uh, but it also means that you have to make the, the investment in public education that works. The example that I can give you when I came into the legislature, uh, people approached me about vouchers. You know, Sylvester, can we get you to support vouchers? You know, you're coming from, you know, Houston and Acres Home, can we get you supported? And so initially I said, uh, it was like a pilot program of some kind. I said, oh, okay, I go out, you know, I believe in options. Okay, I'll do that. And so I was I signed on as an author on this on this pilot voucher program, you know, at the dismay of many of my democratic friends. And um, but at, during the course of the session, I went to people who were joining on as as authors, some of my Republican friends, I would tell you. And it the on the appropriation bill, it was calling for more funding in education, public education. And I asked them, I said, look, y'all are supportive of this, are you not? And they said, well, no, we can't support this. So I said, well, look, I view vouchers as an option, but public education, there are more people on the big ship that are on this boat. And if you only want to provide resources for people on the boat, but you're gonna deprive all these other students on the, on the, on the, on the big ship, then that's not, that's not a winning philosophy for me. It's gotta be a win-win, not a win-lose. So the KIPP program is exceptional. I have spoken to them, I've been out there, um, you know, and in many ways they are now working even within the public school setting. So there are creative ways of making things work where you're providing options to our schools and to parents but not at the destruction of the public school system, because I'm a huge, huge believer in public education and the fact that public education works. My attitude is that if you teach them, our students can learn. And if you invest properly in our public education system, then that talent will rise to the top. And I know that's the case because I, you know, look, you're talking to me and I come from a family of nine where my mom and maid raised nine kids and I'm the mayor of the fourth largest city. And uh, so a kid that, that benefited from the public education system, went to University of Houston, then to Harvard, and now I'm back, and I'm now sitting, sitting here as mayor, and primarily I have come through the public education system. I am not unique, but there were people who invested in my education. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you Mayor Turner. You should all know that he was also uh, president of a senior class at Klein High School. Had to throw that in. Okay, Tom Fish and Bill Galston. Uh, thank you, Mayor Turner. Thank you for everything you're doing. Good to uh, see you, Tom. Nice to see you. And I, I, I really hope 2021 you break your streak of having a crisis for every single year. <laughs> in the office. You can uh, coast at least for one year. But um, Mike, here's my question, because you, you have a great perspective on, and I want to get back to Congress. You mentioned a little while ago that you were a little disappointed in the way um, Congress was uh, working during this time of need in our cities. Yeah. And I'd like to ask you, what, what are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? What do you want to um, 
commend them for and what do you want to grab them by the lapels and shake them and can we how can we hold them more accountable as I think uh, I think people have to constantly be reminded who they are why they are there and for whom they have been put there you know I always say to myself that uh, I am an I'm an employee the people who voted for me are, are the employers. They, I work, I work for them, and uh, and regardless of labels, what 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 people want is they 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 do want us. They do want results. Um, they don't want to hear, oh, look, the Republicans control everything, so there's nothing I can do. And they don't want to hear Democrats over there in control, and they don't want to. But they don't they don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, there are tremendous needs that we are facing uh, in our in our communities, um, and people want people to operate with the greatest degree of urgency. It may not be important. It, it's it's I know it's important for them, but they are looking at it through their lens. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how left wing or right wing in between. Relationships do matter. Friendships. Friendships do matter. I give you an example. You know, I came in, the pension issues have been going on since 2001. Okay. We had not been able to address it. Um, you know, one of the major reasons why we were able to do it, the relationships that had been established. You know, I simply brought in police, fire, municipal workers, sat around and talked to them at the table and just said, look, are we all in this together or not? Okay. Are we all in agreement that we're going to make, we need to make a change or not? And in the first meeting, I only asked two questions. Do we have a problem? They all said yes. Do we need to fix it? They all said yes. And the meeting was over. I said, we'll meet again. But it was important to at least establish that. The next meeting came and I said, you know, these are the things that the city needs, that I need in order to fix it. And I'm gonna leave it up to you all to achieve the objectives that I outlined. So y'all work on it. And we met some more. Uh, and then eventually we just got to the point we got done. And I told them, look, and we have to get this done before the year's out because the legislature's meeting the following year. The point is, is that we have to, you have to constantly bear in mind, relationships are not established just overnight. It takes a while and you have to, and you have to work at it. And uh, I never forget when I was on the floor of the Texas House, and you know, bills keep coming at you left and right, and you really don't have all that time, even with your staff, to read every single bill. I don't care what any legislator say. If a legislator tells you that they've read every single bill, they're lying. It's not true. Too many bills. But what was happening on the floor of the Texas House is that depending who was up at the front of the mic, if that person happened to be a Republican, uh, then Democrats would normally say, mm, we normally oppose. So if you had to step out of, the, out of the room, people would say, just vote me no, okay? And, uh, and, if, and, and if a Democrat was up there speaking, you know, Republicans step out of the room in most cases, just vote me no. If it was the Democrat up there speaking, okay, I'm with that, okay? But let me tell you what, when, when it changed. If there was a Republican who was at the front mic and I had a relationship with, let's say a friend of mine, before I would vote no, I would take the time to at least listen a little bit. And then before I would vote against, I would go either to the back bike or go up to the front and say, um, hey, uh, Sam, uh, Mary, if, if you would tweak this bill just a little bit, I think I can get there. I really think I can get there. And then once that was done, then you move forward. But it was based on the relationship. Another example that I would give you, I had a bill that was in committee and I couldn't, I couldn't get a hearing. I mean, the, the Republican chair just would not give me a hearing. And it was a good bill, but I couldn't get a hearing. A friend of mine, Republican, came to me on the floor and he said, I, can't, I, I won't tell you the nickname that I had, so, but he said, uh, Sylvester, that's a good bill you got, but you'll never get it through. You're, you know, you're a Democrat. He said, I tell you what, let's do this. Do you mind whose name is on the bill? I said, no, I don't mind. look, I just need the bill. So he said, uh, let, 
let's redo the bill. Put my name on it. Put my name on it. Let me carry it. And I said, no problem. Changed it. Bill came out of committee. Bill was on the floor of the house. But did this. When it came to the floor of the house, he was up at the front presenting it. The Democrats started lining up at the back mic to attack the bill. But heck, it was my bill. Just he was carried it. So I, I, I kind of walked to the back of the mic and I told the Democrats at the back of the mic, I said, uh, hey, y'all, I read this bill. This is a pretty good bill. Y'all need, need to stand down on this bill. This is a good. They said, you read it? I said, yeah, I read it. I said, I tell you, trust me, this is a good bill. They, they, they went back to their seats. The bill passed, no objection. My buddy, Republican, came to me at, uh, to my house, uh, to the floor, shook my hand, and uh, I said, thank you, thank you, and he went on by his way. There are ways to make things happen when the relationships are real. And I don't care, where, I don't care what form you're in, friendship is a powerful tool and a powerful weapon. And relationships, in many cases, can trump partisanship. But in the absence of a relationship, and if it's strictly partisanship, you will run into a brick wall almost every single time, or it'll take too long to get an end result because someone has to be the winner and someone would have to be the loser. Um, Mayor, this is Glenn. We will. We have one more question from Bill Galston. He's going to ask it, and after you answer it, he's going to close. But just okay. as the moderator, on behalf of everyone, I want to say a huge thanks, and we hope you will always be a friend of No Labels. And so, Bill, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, hey, Bill. Well, first of all, Mayor Turner, it's a it's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Make your make your acquaintance. My first job was a young assistant professor, University of Texas at Austin. Ah. And I, I got a, I got a very nice offer from the University of Houston. And if I had taken it all those years ago, I think I'd be proud to be one of your constituents. So, <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you know, before I ask my question, I just want to make two points about what No Labels is doing because we're on your side. Uh, we really are. We're, we have helped to broker a compromise on state and local aid for the, the, pending, the pending bill, which right. we're convinced is the only thing that Democrats and Republicans are gonna be able to agree on in the end. And if they do, help is on the way. Thanks. Uh, we are also helping to create a national testing program uh, that would create public confidence so that your schools, your restaurants, your bars, your public events can reopen. Uh, and everybody else's can too. Go ahead. Here's my question. Sure. Uh, in states and in states and cities around the country, the pension problem has been the biggest and most intractable problem. And almost in passing, in your introductory remarks, you know, you said that you had helped lead the city of Houston to solve that problem. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you did it? Because that sounds like a miracle. Well, uh, I will tell you, we, I did bring everybody in very, very early on. And what I said, um, the priorities that I said, I said, look, I need, I, I need a solution that will reduce the unfunded liability by almost a third without raising people's taxes. Um, we need a solution that will, um, for us to be able to reduce uh, our annual costs, okay? Um, and we need a permanent solution. But what I meant by that was that depending on what happens out in the economy, it has to constantly go down. I mean, it can't, it just can't be uh, we're doing something today and then three years or five years from now, it starts rising again and we're having to face this. It needs to be a permanent, a permanent solution. And then the fourth one was that it, it, I, I, needed, I needed something, I, it needed to be worked out by the end of the year. I came in office in January of 2016. I started meeting with the different groups uh, in February of 2016 is when we started. And so those were the elements that I, I, those were the things that I said, you know, I needed. And I said to the different groups, uh, police, fire, municipal employees, you know your employees the best, you know what they are willing to accept. 
So um, uh, you can just, oh, let me back up. There was one other thing that I said. I said, um, how do you, I asked him, I said, how do you feel about the defined contribution? And I went around, police said, no. Fire said, hell no. Municipal employee said, no. And uh, so I went to the board and I wrote down defined contribution. And I put an X through it. And I said, okay, that only leaves us now with defined benefit. And you know, if we stay with the defined benefit, that means there's gonna to have to be some drastic reductions. There's gonna be some pain. You all understand that. They all said, yes. And I said, okay. Uh, and then the next time we met, I laid out my, the criteria, the things that I needed. And I said, now you go in and you all work to redesign your own plans in order to achieve my results. Um, and one of course was reducing the unfunded liability by about a third. At that point in time, the city of Houston's unfunded liability was about $8.2 billion costing the city a million dollars a day. Well, it took, it took about uh, seven to eight months to really uh, to come up with a plan that would, that would meet my objectives. And once we were able to do that, their different groups had to, had to vote on it. Uh, city council had to vote on it. City council voted and approved it uh, 16 to one. Um, then the, the business community joined on locally. We had to go to the legislature uh, and I've, I, I asked uh, a Republican in the House and a Republican in the Senate to carry the, the city's bill. Uh, it passed out of the House and Senate by a two thirds margin, governor signed it. And a part of the deal is that over the last 15 years, the city had borrowed from uh, the police pension fund uh, about $750 million. They had borrowed also from the municipal pension fund quite a bit. And a part of the agreement is that we would pay them back and that we were, we were agreeing to make the full annual payment on a yearly basis. And then lastly, the, the, which was the big piece, is that what happens if costs start to go up? How do you, how do you control the cost? Because you know it's not a defined contribution. How do you control the cost? So we put in place what we call this corridor that set the maximum that if, if the costs start to rise and if it hits that maximum level, then the pension systems, um, they were obligated to go back and, re and adjust their benefits to stay within the corridor. And the corridor had to go down over 30 years, like a closed amortization of 30 years. Uh, and that brought on some of the conservatives, for example, in the legislature, who said, well, it may not be a defined contribution, but mayor is, is certainly operating like a defined contribution so that they could, they could go with that, with the, with the corridor that said that the city would never have to pay more than what it was obligating to pay. And it would, it would, it would over 30 years, it would go down. It was a close 30, 30 year amortization. So did that, um, the final vote with city, the people in the city of Houston had to vote to approve the bonds to pay off uh, the police and the municipal workers um, people in the city of Houston approved that like 75%, 75 to 25%. Uh, and ever since then, uh, the city has paid the full annual cost. Uh, the unfunded liability already has dropped from 8.2 down to about, uh, about $4 billion. So almost in half, the unfunded liability has dropped and, is, and, it, and it goes down from this point forward. Uh. I have only one suggestion. Uh, would you visit the mayor of Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> Briefer on what you did, because <laughs> I think you have the only way out. Uh, let me just close. Let me just close this in two ways. Uh, first, first of all, Mayor Turner, uh, no labels is sometimes asked. Well, what kinds of leaders do you have in mind when you're talking about bipartisan leadership? Uh, and I think we've just we've just found a new person to send them to, uh, because everything you everything you said and the way you said it exemplifies the best of the kind of leadership we're looking for, including your story about naming your number two from the parts of Houston that gave you the least support. That was you know that was terrific. I mean that's the way it should work. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I really, I, I really do think, uh, that your, your voice could be a really important one 
speaking with and, be, and on behalf of, of the kind of national leadership model that we're championing, which is really just what you're doing in Houston, taken national. So we hope this dialogue can, can continue. Mayor Turner notes that pension and budget issues were a huge priority in Houston when he took office five years ago. But with Hurricane Harvey and other natural disasters in the few years after, the city government has had to redirect efforts. Now with COVID-19 and the racial unrest that soon followed, Mayor Turner is dealing with a truly unprecedented set of challenges. But he believes Houston will rebound because it is the energy capital of the world and home to the world's largest medical center, creating a natural ecosystem for innovation. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.